Welcome back to the Surfacing Leaders Podcast, where you can come along with nuclear submarine officer, sought-after turnaround CEO and founder of Lead with Purpose, Mark Kohler, as he tells the stories of leaders in unlikely places and the human spirit that drives us all to show us that anyone can learn to be a leader. And now, here's Mark Kohler. Today's guest is a special one. We're welcoming Mark Bertinoli, who you will find I share lots of similarities with. You know, not only in his name, I mean, I spell mine M-A-R-C, he spells his name M-A-R-K, mine is correct. But he's also a U.S. nuclear submarine officer on fast attack submarines. Turns out that he was on the same exact submarine that I was. And he left the submarine force, though, and he went to pursue other adventures. You know, Mark's been a leader at Texas Instruments. And yes, the very same calculator company that we all know. He's a top leader with a career stint at a prestigious hedge fund. Um, well-known on Wall Street, portfolio manager, and most recently, an investor in businesses primarily focused in finding a cure for cancer. Now, on everything Mark's done, Mark's surfaced as a leader, and I'm excited to dive into that today. You know, Mark's been married to his wife, Laura, for 25 years. They have two sons, Tyler and Jake, and they reside in San Diego, California. Mark, welcome to Surfacing Leaders. Thanks, Mark. Glad to be here. All right, so let's start off, uh, and uh, let's start off with the Navy. You know, you and I met on the USS Pogi, the 647, and after I'd been there for about two years. Now, when you showed up, I was like, how young is this guy? I mean, I remember looking at you going, are you 19 years old? I was 22. You were 22, right. And so take us through a little bit, you know, where you came from, you know, time you went to school in Michigan, and then how you decided to go into the Navy, particularly the submarine force. Sure. Yeah. I grew up outside of Ann Arbor, a suburb of Detroit called Northville. And I graduated there in 1986. I had been recruited to go to the Naval Academy by a former professor there. Somebody worked at the Marine Guard under Nixon. And he said, don't worry about an appointment. And I said, I want to fly. And he said, well, you're, what's your vision? I said, 2030. He said, no, but you could always command a submarine. I said, well, I'm not going to the academy. Right. Or if I can, you know, if submarine or ship, I want to fly. I wanted to fly. My whole, ever since I was three, I wanted to be all about airplanes. When the space shuttle blew up, I saw that live. And I said, that's it. I wanted to be an aerospace engineering major. And went to Michigan, discovered the new POC program, and got into it at the end of my sophomore year. So May of 88, yeah, decided that I wanted to be in the military. At the end of the day, that's what I wanted. And then when I was stashed in Washington, D.C., I told my boss that I wanted to be a pilot. I didn't want to be a nuclear submarine officer anymore because they changed the rules. So they changed the rules to 2030. And he said, yeah, sorry, pal. You're, you're, you're going nuke. Suck it up. But luckily, I, I ended up on the pogey and had a great captain and a great crew. And it made all the difference. So you, you had similarly like a Top Gun moment where you wanted to initially fly because that's what brought me into the recruiting office in Buffalo, New York. And then they said, hey, you didn't pass one of the tests and your thigh bone is three eighths of an inch too long. And Only three eighths? You're yeah. six four, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> How did I get on a Yeah. So get on a submarine. Yeah. So get on a submarine. <laughs> Go on a small tube under the water. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a, better, <laughs> a better idea. But well, that, that's fantastic. 
But as you think about, you know, our time together on the submarine, what are some things that you remember about the environment that we were in? And were there any stories that were in and around that really express, you know, how we handled that environment? Oh, the six hour watches with the, when you're dead tired. Yeah, those, those were interesting. But I think the, the thing that struck me about the vi- environment of the pogi was how great the wardroom was. That's what struck me first and foremost. When you get to a submarine and you're not an ROTC guy or an academy guy, getting to your submarine and understanding that you're going to have to know the function of virtually every valve, every button, every switch, everything, and we need you to do it now. It's kind of daunting. You get that that yes. call card and there are literally hundreds, hundreds of lines for signatures to get. And you can't screw it up because people can die if you make a mistake and that's real. So it is daunting, but I thought that our, our wardroom was pretty welcoming and fun and we backed each other up. A couple of stories, one of our I think one of your favorite junior officers got a a ticket to the Super Bowl, but it was a working Sunday. And the XO said, no, he can't go. And the wardroom rallied around him and said, come on, we, we right. want to celebrate these good deals. Let him have a good deal. We will cover for him. So to me, that's, that, that cohesiveness, that brotherhood, I mean, we, I spent more time with you guys than I did my own brother. So I thought of you all as my brothers. And that's, I think what, that to me is what lasts. Yeah, that's great. What's one of your favorite stories about your time on the submarine? I was a qualified officer of the deck and I was raising the periscope. And there's something on the, on the submarine called Paraviz. Then I would keep in mind, it's all state of the art now, but back then what you had was just a television repeater and control so that the captain and other people in control can see what you see out of the periscope. And I'm raising the scope and the paraviz wasn't on yet. And I put my eye to the scope and I back went, holy crap, what? And they quickly turn on paraviz to make sure we weren't about to hit a ship or a, you know, anything. And it was a, it was a dolphin that was looking his nose right in the periscope. So I saw this massive dolphin. Yeah. That, so it wasn't my proudest moment. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I, I remember the one I told us in the, in the first drop, uh, first uh, session was uh, was it was we were bored to death and we had to go off station a little bit to get rid of some trash, and I can remember um, we would we would drop trash. They were basically cylinders, and we put weights in, and we as we dropped it, we would just mark where we dropped it. And I can remember I was so bored that I just was taking the submarine and moving it around in different courses and positions, and I remember you coming up and saying. Hey, I'm ready to, you know, relieve you as officer of the deck. And you finally looked at the the plot and you were like, what is this? Because you, it looks like you're doing something. Yes. And do you remember what that was? It was a martini glass design that Mark was dropping trash and I completed the design. Yes. That was fantastic. <laughs> I, I made sure I came back and made sure you completed it. So it's good. Okay. So we're going to spend some more time really delving in, Mark about your journey after the Navy. Sure. But if you were to summarize, looking back right now, what were, what were the most valuable leadership lessons that you left the Navy with? 
That's a that's a great question. I think the top characteristic is accountability. And you know, when you when you come into the Navy as an officer, you get a different uniform. And by virtue of that different uniform and the gold bars they put on your collar, that means that you're a leader. And yes, you can order people to do stuff who work for you, but they need to be accountable to you. But how do you how do you make it so that they can be accountable? And I think that's one of the things that I took away was helping my division be accountable. Let's make it easy for them to be accountable to me. And I, I, we can get into it, what I did in order to make that happen. Yeah. Well, give us an example. Sure. So in a submarine, you have officers call it at, well, we did at, at seven in the morning and you go through what needs to be done that day. You know, when are we getting underway? Has that changed? Just the, the daily goings on of the, of the ship. And Generally, division officers go back to their divisions at that point and they get requests from their division. This is the work we want to do. We want to tag out this system. And what a tag out is, is you put a red tag on a switch or a valve and say, don't open this, do not open or don't turn this switch on because somebody's working in the electrical panel or something like that. It takes a while to prepare them and and to actually do the tag out so that the work can be done. Yes. So what I did was I came to the submarine at six o'clock and I got all the tag outs, anything that needed captain's permission between six and seven reported to officer's call. My guys were working at 730. And the rule, general rule of thumb on our boat was if you're not on duty, work's done, you go home. So my guys loved that they were working by 730 because that meant they were gone by three. And you gave them incentive also. Right. Hey, as soon as the work is done, you know, you get liberty, yep. uh, which is fantastic. Yeah, that, that's just, I, I think a lot of those things, like what I left with was probably same thing you did. I remember Senior Chief Swisher and I showed up, I was a green ensign and it was, it was like, hey, you're going to be the MPA. First job, right? And we were told, we just came from a school that said, hey, you won't be the MPA till about 18 months. For know, everybody, so. that's a very, very senior junior officer job to have, yeah. MPA. Yeah. And so the captain put me in that role, but I think he put me in that role because there was a, a very senior enlisted person, senior chief Swisher, who was going to help me to be successful as a leader. And so I can remember him, even though, you know, you know this, Mark, even though we could boss them around and say, we're going to do this and everything like that, I never did any of that. And he always prepared me for everything. And he always stood as a shield between the officers and, and the division, which I thought was, you know, tremendous. I can remember him so many times pulling me aside. Hey, don't act that way. Right. Who was that person? He goes, I go, what do you mean? He goes, that's not Mark Kohler. Right? That's not Lieutenant Kohler. So I think like that's probably one of the things, you know, same thing, accountability. And learning how he did it was super powerful for me because then obviously later in life, you're like, how do I help others become successful? And so I think, you know, saying the same thing, he helped me to become accountable to the officers, but then also to the own division. So, right. Right. That's awesome. All right. So Let's now shift from the Navy and let's talk about, you know, your first jobs after the Navy. You know, I know I started 
or I know you started at Texas Instruments and I made this joke about graphing calculators because that's what we remember, what we used sure. in engineering. But you were involved in something very different. So talk about that transition to Texas Instruments. Sure. So TI, I was going to be working in the automotive group. So I got the job, didn't know really what a semiconductor was. I thought they were the things that went into the calculators. I couldn't open a file on the Windows computer. Oh, you simply go to this drive and this directory and down and, and study that. I'm like, I can't, I don't know what now? How do I, I can't, I couldn't do it. I could turn it on, but that's it. And it is embarrassing having to go to the guy and the, the engineer in the cubicle next to you. But you know, one thing you have in the Navy is confidence. You you went from nothing to having the captain say, I'm going to go to sleep and you're going to drive my submarine through these, you know, this strait with all these ships, right? In a year and a half, that happens. So I figured that I could learn it, but I kept falling back on that. Whenever I had to ask a question, T.I. is like, I can run a nuclear power plant, but I can't find the G drive. So then they were probably scared to death, Mark. They're like, seriously? Well, were you you were in a submarine? Were yeah. you were you the cook? And you, you can't cook? Yeah, exactly. You couldn't even, I mean, so finally I found the G drive and I started learning about semiconductors. And really what it was was an account manager role, a program manager where we had a, you know, trying to design in chips into cars that would be coming out in four years. What I tried to do on the boat was to kind of build consensus with the division. I rarely tried to pull the, I'm the division officer and you'll do what I say. You do all this work and I'll be in the wardroom watching a movie. Just report to me when it's done. I tried not to take that tack. So that's what I tried to do with at Texas Instruments because you have the customer automotive and then you have the factory. So you're kind of that liaison. Hey, they need this information now, guys. So you can't just yell at them. They don't work for you. Right. So you have to explain, hey, if they don't get this information, this is what's in jeopardy. But it's not as critical. It's not like we need to get underway on Thursday. You know, so your stuff needs to be buttoned up. It's not like that. That's what a I a lot I, slower. I found I you know my transition to Honeywell was a little tough because, you know, when we said we're getting underway at 1300, we got underway at 1300. Yep. I mean, I can remember, you know, being up and saying, hey, Captain, the submarine's ready to get underway. And he said, what time is it, Mr. Kohler? I said, it's 12.56. He says, what time are we supposed to get underway? I said, 1,300. He goes, and then he said, is it 1,300 yet? And I said, no. He said, so when should we get underway? And I said, 1,300. Yes. Yeah, we, we, you know, we learned that too. So submarine, sometimes we had to do that. All right, what was it that inspired you or encouraged you to say, hey, I'm going to shift industries now. I'm going to shift over to the financial industry I had always had a kind of a fascination with with stocks and the markets and what caused things to go up and down. And I knew that that's kind of what I wanted to do in the long run. I can't golf worth a crap. And a lot of a lot of semiconductors in San Diego happens on the golf course. And I'm just, that's just not me. Cramming 25 hours of work into a 40-hour work week, having been a submarine officer, is just not my style. So I, I applied to business school. I was deferred at Stanford. Laura was commuting to Cincinnati. She was working for Cincinnati Energy in their energy trading. 
And it just was a tough way to start a marriage. And so we thought, oh, we'll go to the Bay Area. And then a year later, I'll start at school. And Laura can find a finance job up there. And she was looking on monster.com and found associate semiconductor analyst for Solomon Smith Barney. She goes, well, this is more up your alley. So, well, that's interesting. That's what I wanted to do after business school. I ended up applying and, and getting that job. Talk about the interview process with this. Oh, yeah. So I remember I was, I was driving down to Mexico and this was probably my second or third time talking to the senior analyst, Clark, who was, had just been ranked Wall Street Journal number one investor, sell-side analyst investor, because his, his, you know, his stocks did so well. And so he's kind of intimidating. And I'm, I'm approaching the border and you know, he starts asking me some questions. And again, this is the arrogance of having been a submarine officer. It kind of leaks out. But he starts asking me about, and, and by the way, for anybody that knows anything about business or model, these are rudimentary things. This is like tying your shoes. Do you know the difference between gross margin, operating margin, net margin? And I'm like, nah, no. And he goes, he goes, oh, well, I think you'd have a pretty steep learning curve. At this point, I know I don't have the job. And so I said, I said, well, Clark, I went from college graduate to DOE certified operator of a nuclear power plant in one year. I think I can learn your margins. I might even have said little margins. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, oh, okay. So, cause I figured I didn't have it. He called me, I think a week later and said they were gonna offer the job to somebody from another bank. A week after that, he said, well, we were just being levered for more money. You still interested? Yes. Come up Friday, talk to him for half an hour on Friday, Monday, the offer got faxed to me and that was it. Oh, that's great. So talk about what you did at Solomon Smith Barney, because I think it's a stepping stone into, into the next part of the conversation. Sure. So, you know, I was, I was Clark's associate analyst. So I, I, my job was to learn our space. It was communications components. I mean, it was a very hot space. These were the, the pieces that the, the semiconductor chips, maybe they went for $1,000 and they helped build the telecom equipment during the whole internet build out. And he was a fantastic boss. He said, Mark, I want you to answer my phone and that way you'll get to know our clients and you can listen in on any client call that I have. So you can start to get into the flow of the questions that they ask, what they care about. And so he gave me more and more responsibility, really the smaller companies, the the newer IPOs. I got to write the research reports and, and things like that. But that was kind of my my job was to answer questions of of wealth managers, so smaller, smaller clients, listen in on the on the bigger ones. So I, I learned a lot, tremendous amount. What was the significance of him allowing you to sit in on these conversations? And how much did you learn from that? You learn so much. And then it's interesting because you think that when you're in that job, wow, I'm learning how the stock market works. And then you realize when you go to the buy side, the, like the hedge fund guys, what they're doing, that's really where the rubber meets the road. So what, what I found was that a lot of the questions are, what do people think? What do people think? What do... Oh, Broadcom? What do people think about Broadcom? What do they expect them to print? And so I started to get a sense for what really makes a stock work. So now you're going to make a shift and a jump. So tell us the story 
of how you went from Solomon Smith Barney to Pequot. Sure. So one of the Clark had a handful of names that if if one of these people call, interrupt me. Come knock on my door and tell me who's on the phone. And one was was my future boss, Gary at Pequot. And Gary was a prolific stock picker. Absolutely phenomenal. So I I can't tell you how many times I answered the phone and the conversation would go like this. Hey, Mark, it's Gary. Yep. Hold on. Let me go get Clark for you. Boom. And that was it. So one time it was, oh, hey, Gary, let me get Clark. Oh, oh, wait, hold on. What do you, you thought about your career? Yeah. Let's go to lunch. So we talked about it and he asked if I ever thought about going to the buy side. If you can't see yourself sitting in front of the sales force, getting pilloried with a bunch of questions, you know, if you want to actually be where the money is, consider the buy side. I said, okay, then yeah, let's do it. So Pequot was non-tech, half non-tech, half tech, and about $15 billion. Dan Benton, famous investor, his partner was Chris James, who was very well known in his own right as a semiconductor analyst, now portfolio manager, partner with Dan has his own firm now, extremely successful and brilliant. So I went to go interview with him and it was like right out of a movie. I walk into this office. It's like a law office with the quilted maple panels, own bathroom, massive. And he's got his back to me and he's got four huge screens with 3000 stocks going and charts and everything. And I'm sitting there and it reminded me of my interview for to get into the nuclear Navy with the Admiral and you're just sitting there sweating and he turns around slowly and he says, what do you know about us? Well, I know Pequot is a, is a large hedge fund. We're not a hedge fund. We're an alternative investment vehicle. (laughs) Alternative investment vehicle. Okay. We're, you're a large alternative investment vehicle. And, and so he asked me a couple of questions, looks down at my resume, you know, he's got this stern face and I get it. I mean, it's a pressure cooker. He wants to make sure I'm not going to wilt like a flower, right? He wants to make sure I'm, I'm built with the right stuff. And so he looks down at my resume, he goes, oh, you're on submarines? I said, yep. And he said, well, gosh, I, I guess that's a lot of pressure compared to calling stocks. And of course, again, here comes that submarine arrogance. Well, you know, if you make a mistake, 135 people could die. And he was like, oh, yeah. Anyway, so anyway, Pequot's great. Here's what we do. Like his tone completely changed. He asked me a couple questions about what I thought about my stocks or whatever. And, and, and so that was it. Yeah, that's awesome. So now we're at the hedge fund. An alternative investment vehicle. Yes. And a, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was a brand. That was a new branding work, right? <laughs> Yes, exactly. So now you're on this other side of the wall. Yes. And you bring a bunch of skills and experience you've had from the from the one side of the wall to the other side of the wall. Where does it start out with? Because they're not going to put you in, in charge of, you know, things right away. My mandate were the communications components. And it was really open book, whatever I wanted to do to become an expert in my space. So my day started out, you know, getting in between 5 and 5.30, news flow, anything having to do with my companies, 
If it was Monday, it was a portfolio review, which could be anywhere from two to four hours. Every company in the portfolio model up on the wall and everybody trying to break it because every thing that we did was to be found in the model. Our thesis was in the model. We had what we think the company is going to do, bottoms up by by product line. Then once, let's say that, let's say that I'm trying to figure out what Broadcom is doing. I might do some channel checks. I might try to talk to some customers, maybe competitors. And then I would write a note. And the note was for us basically the same format. Conclusion, buy more, sell it, hold, whatever. Why in a sh- and then and then bullet point details. That was our process, and uh, you know we just we just had this process that worked. That's why Dan was so successful. If SEC's listening, these are not forward-looking statements, but I think he I think ninety four to 08, after fees, I think he returned twenty eight percent to investors annual. I mean that's pretty good. Amazing. I mean, that's really good. Just amazing. It's, it's fantastic. So it sounds like it sounds like having a plan, which was your model, was really important. But then basically doing an analysis, like a SWOT analysis, like every single day on every single event that happened that was critical to that was important to make sure that that was put into the model. Yep. And then it sounds like you came together as a team. Talk to us about that. You're coming to this meeting. And you're supposed to put your model up on the on the board. Right? You're supposed to have all your notes. Yeah, it's 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 a very nerve wracking thing Monday morning. I can tell you, you know, and some of these things were just brutal. What what's your share count? Why do you have share count going up by three percent? You know, well they guided to that. Okay, fair enough. I mean, it was like every line other income you have going up seven percent. Why is other income in four quarters going up seven? I don't know. I, you know, four quarters out from now, I don't know, you know, but this is, this is the detail. Wow. Like what type of, I mean, sounds like it was a high stress environment on a day-to-day basis. How did, how did the environment that we were in, in the submarine force prepare you for that? I I think, you know, for me, it was... You know, when you're going to be the e, the engineering officer of the watch for the big nuclear test that you have every year, it's called ORS. Doing the drills, I same kind of butterflies because it's all on you. You have to save the plant so that you guys get up so that we as a ship get a passing grade. And they pick the most junior EOs, engineering officer of the watch EOs. They they pick the three most junior to, to be tested because the assumption is the more senior guys know it. And what I realized was after the drill set, I was still on this kind of high, this, you know, I, I don't know what endorphin, whatever it is, adrenaline. I couldn't sleep. It must have been adrenaline. I couldn't sleep. And I realized, you know, because I just did it. And what I took in, in these portfolio reviews are are long, but I knew that they'd be over. And as long as, as, as long as I did my job and I prepped for it, which I did in the Navy, I studied the drills and I'd go over them in my head. As long as I prepped for it, I knew that I was going to survive it. And, and that was it. I, 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 you know, putting together, I wanted to aggregate the 
the weekly report because I got a sense of the whole food chain, right? The box guys, I got to read his stuff. And so then I was, you know, I couldn't really talk about the components are going to go through the roof if I just put in the weekly that the box guy, box guy says, oh, there's so much inventory, box guys are going to all guide down. Well, I can't be bullish in my space if their customers are all blowing up. So it was, it was the preparation and knowing that this feeling that I have being on the pressure cooker, you know, and, and under the microscope, that's going to end at some point, just like the drill set ended. That's how I got through it. How long did you work for Dan? I went there in 2000 and I left in, when did I leave? Oh, eight. There were some massive things that were happening externally, oh, yeah. like 9-11, the right. 08 housing market bubble. You worked for him for eight years. He sounds like, you know, he was a, he was a hard ass. But yes and no. You, you worked for eight years for him. So he, he, there's some things he must've done wrong. What are the things you think that he did really well? I, I think him reading the analysts were, he was exceptional at that. I mean, he, he, people back then called him arguably the best tech, tech investor of our era or maybe of all time. He just knew the, I mean, in 2000 to, you know, halfway through 2003, we, I think we were like 80% short and we had one long, it was eBay and we made money on eBay and we made money on our shorts. I mean, and that was Dan and, and Chris, but that's, you know, they're absolutely, and were they, were they hard? Yes. But their job was to test my conviction. So here- absolutely. When you, when you start in a hedge fund, the person who had my seat at, at Solomon, Kurt, pulled me aside at some conference and says, hey, welcome to the, to the buy side, to the hedge fund world, but don't be alarmed if every recommendation you make, the portfolio manager does the opposite because you're consensus. I hate to say it. You think you're good, but you're consensus. And that's okay. We all are when we get here. And that's kind of the way it was, although- you know, my space was so obviously going down from 50 times earnings or 50 times revenue. So now fast forward, probably, I don't know, four or five years, tech used to always fade every day in, in August and just a slow, slow burn of the stocks because portfolio managers are in the Hamptons and there's just no buyers and it would just slowly kind of fade. Well, I had made a name for myself on a, on a couple of stocks, and one of which was a company called Marvell. And Dan, every day in the IM, MRVL, question mark. I'd write the same thing every day. I should have just copied and pasted it. I think it's going to be a typical Marvell quarter. I think they're going to beat by a penny and guide up, you know, da, 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 da. But I think it's going to be good. I think it's going to be fine. Next day, Marvell, question mark. You know, it's going down a percent every day. And finally, after, I don't know, two weeks of this, I just say, I can't take it anymore, Dan, throw in the towel. I'm, I'm throwing in the towel. So I look over at our chat that had our trader that who gave us news and kept us up to date on the orders. And our orders, because we were pretty big, you know, we're, they're working the order. So it might take a couple of days to get an order. In. But we were, you know, I see this order of buying, I don't know how many millions of shares. And I was like, whoa, whoa. I called, I called up the trader. I'm like, is that a buy or a sell? Because I'm past the point where I'm consensus in my own mind, right? Like he should be following my recommendations, not going against me. And so he goes, we're buying. 
So I like and wh- why? Well, so I, yeah, I, I I did the same to him. I went MRVL question mark, <laughs> and he because I'm thinking I'm my this is my last day at Android. You, you told him the wrong thing, right? I'm like that's right. I'm I'm in year five and I'm still consensus. I'm out. Like this is it. And so I so he goes gave me his I think it was fifty four ten X five four one zero. So I call him. And I said, I said, you must think I'm the biggest idiot on Wall Street. And he goes, no, I don't. I, what, you don't think I have? Well, yeah, I said, I guess I don't have a strong stomach then. And he goes, no, on the contrary, you do. And that's something Dan, people know about Dan. He's got a strong stomach. He can watch something go against him and he'll just short more or buy more. So, so let me get this right. So for two weeks, he's calling you, asking you, whether we should sell or not, because he's looking at some external thing and you're sitting there going like, oh, what do I do? Where are you going to make the determination of whether you should sell or not? You're going to your model? Is that is that where you're, you're, you're going? I So while my model really didn't change in my mind, I'm thinking I'm wrong. No, that's what I mean. So, yeah. So maybe it's, maybe it's like the Altera all over again. Yeah. Oh my God, are they going to die But for two weeks, down? every single day, you you went back to your lighthouse, which yep. was your model, and you got to trust your model, right? And then take and then take into account, but keep looking at it and evaluating for yep. two weeks. And channel checks too, like, you know, talking to our analysts in Asia, like, hey, are, and they, they were big into disk drives. They made a component on the disk. Hey, are, are disk drives slowing down over in Asia? No, nope. And keep in mind, we're heading to Q4, which is the beginning of Q4 is like, build, build, build for the holidays, you know? And I'm, and I'm just like, I, I don't know why. I, I just, I, maybe, I, maybe it was just getting pinged on every day and I just couldn't take that. I, I don't know what it was. Did you think he had an inclination that you didn't maybe know or no? I thought maybe he knew something that I didn't know. Okay. And that, that has happened, but I'm like, Dan and I, we've been around the block together too long for him to be playing those games with me. This must be it. I must be getting fired. You know? <laughs> I mean, imagine a job where every day you go in thinking it could be your last. <laughs> That's hedge fund life sometimes. So I, you know, so I, he goes, oh, on the contrary, Mark, like you, you have a strong stomach. You, I think you know more about this company than anybody on Wall Street. And if you're the last seller, then I'm buying you. Because all the lower conviction people have already sold out. That's what we've seen till today. That's at the bottom and it rocketed. So so I get, I, you know, on my little performance thing, I get the benefit of him essentially doubling down at the bottom. It was his call. Right. But on my PL, I claimed it. Right. Of course I did my job as an analyst. He did his job as a portfolio manager reading me, you know? Right. So I have this vision of you like getting a cardboard box and like putting everything in it. Like, hey, this is my oh, last day. Oh yeah. It's no, there was a woman, the 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 I, I have had to fire somebody there. And boy, the process of Dan telling you to fire somebody, you firing them, and her having the box ready was a hundred and eighty seconds. I mean, it it happens fast. At and I mean, yeah, she's got the box. Hands, wow. yep. You go in, you clear your stuff, and out you go. Yeah. But yeah, that didn't that didn't happen that day. As you started rising up within Pequot, mm-hmm. and you had others potentially, you know, underneath you. 
what were some lessons that you took from the submarine force that you found to be very valuable in this really high stress environment as you were working with others? I, I go back to the en enabling accountability. And, you know, uh, Gary taught me that, but also the submarine community in that he wanted, Gary wanted to know what barriers I had to being able to do my job and he would knock them down. Oh, you, you, you're worried about the cost of that ticket to Asia? Yeah, no. Book it, go, just go. So it, the same sort of thing that I would do when I started to have analysts under me was providing them the framework. It, I didn't do a sink or swim attitude with them. I showed them how I wanted them to model because I'm going to be responsible for that model to the portfolio manager. But I showed them how to do it. I had them listen in on my calls as well, just like Clark taught me. And, you know, but basically trying to make their job easier so that they could, I mean, we had a kind of a mantra, hire your replacement. Because, you know, that's what Gary did. Sorry. Gary was calm ICs. He moved up, he hired me. And then I ended up taking Gary's spot when he moved on. And so that was the mentality. And to me, if I'm hiring my replacement, I, I don't want to have to fire this guy and hire another one. I believe I hired this person because I believe in them. And I, I made some, I think, really good hires. I mean, just really smart kids who really wanted to understand stocks. And like, I, I interviewed this young man from Harvard. And I, 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 you know, I don't have stars in my eyes because of Ivy League, but I thought I'd interview him because he started an investment club. Okay, I'll interview him. I mean, I had the stack of people that wanted to work in, at Andor and P Pequot for everybody. Pequot became Andor. The tech side of Pequot was carved out and became Andor. The, I'd have an inch worth of resumes and, you know, I got to hire somebody from that. And this young man came in and and I said, well, so what what do you think makes a good stock? And he goes, oh, I I think it's expanding out. You know, he started talking like he read our book if we had one. I was like, oh, this kid's good. He's twenty one years old, and he was a go getter, a great analyst. I would come in at five thirty, and he'd already been there at five, having talking to IR people on the East Coast to learn the model. So I gave him the model, and he's going through every line item. Because I told them, we're responsible for every line item. It was good. One of the conversations that we had the other day was in and around accountability to the mission. And what you shared with me was that when you were in a portfolio review, even though someone else had put together all the data and the information of the model, and the model was up on the screen, and then they also added that, hey, we have this other piece of information when Dan or Chris asked you, why isn't that in the model? You didn't say, well, Phil didn't do it. Oh, right. When, when it was my, my, my junior analyst who Correct. did, oh yeah, I took the hit for that. Absolutely. And, and because, and to me, that's part of teaching the accountability. It's the same thing we learned in the Navy, right? The damn XO. When the XO tells the division officers, Saturday's an all hands work day, and you need to go tell your divisions. We weren't supposed to say, I'm sure most of us did though, the damn XO is making us come in tomorrow. We're supposed to say, Correct. 
I want you to come in tomorrow, chief. I want everybody here at 0700 because we are cleaning up the ship before the admiral comes on board or whatever. And so I, that's a piece I took. And so that's respecting the chain of command up. And we learned it, I don't know, almost every day, respecting the chain of command down. When you and I went in to see the captain and it was, you know, somebody who screwed up in your watch section, you screwed up. You would say, I did that. I didn't do that. I, that's my mistake. And he knew that it was somebody didn't turn the valve or hit the switch. He knew it was somebody else, but we took ownership of it. And the same thing, the same thing for me, for the portfolio review is if it was my analyst doing the model, it's my responsibility still, my accountability up the chain of command. And if, and if it was mess, I, I, Said, yeah, I'll get it fixed. I screwed Were that they up. in the meeting with you when yes. that happened? Oh, yeah. And so what happened afterwards? Like, what did they say to you? Oh, before they could apologize, I'd say, fix your model. <laughs> 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 but no, I mean, but that's it. You, I mean, you you know, they, they knew. I mean, you, you could see their face turning beet red that they screwed up. But and you you're getting leader, yelled. You as a leader taking taking the hit for that, of what course. did that do with your relationship with them? Oh, it completely struck. Because now they trust me. They know that I'm not going to throw them under the bus. Because again, this is an environment where you, you remember the Navy phrase, the perception is real, right? Whatever your perception, if that petty officer thinks that there is a KGB agent on the boat trying to kill them, you can't tell them they're an idiot, moron. There is no, that's their reality. You have to get into the boat with them right. and address it from their perspective. And this, the reality, the, the perception of, of a high-stress hedge fund environment is a mistake can cause you to be fired. I mean, Dan and Chris sometimes didn't even know my analyst names. When one of them, Dan called the consultant. He said, Mark, fire the consultant. Dan, I got to go to the, fire the consultant. Okay. Two minutes. That, that was the 180 seconds. He called me, called the consultant into a room, told him it's not working out. I look over his shoulder. There's Cheryl with his box. My goodness. Wow. So, so that perception that if, if, if my analyst, if I threw the analyst under the bus, they could be like, well, you don't trust your analyst. Why, you know, why, why don't we let him go? Get another one. Right, but I like my analysts. People are going to make mistakes, especially junior guys. So, and I, I, I'd been through that ringer before. Right, I knew it was going to end. That pressure was going to end. Wow, that's fantastic. If you can share with us, even if you didn't sell, what was best day? What was worst day? As it relates to, to dollars, where uh, you had the stomach, what was? Well, I think I think you what, don't have to say day. I mean, it could yeah, be, it could be something that you three months, a year you made a. Well, I think the it? the best day that I had was, and and not in terms of dollars, because even again, let me tell you the best and worst day combo that I had, Qualcomm. 
doing channel checks. I got this intricate model. I got everything modeled out. I'm writing notes. Conclusion, buy more Qualcomm. You know, next one, conclusion, Qualcomm should be our top long. You know, but it's three and a half percent. It's moderate to high, right? They print, you know, and, and by the way, we had a, t a meeting every day. Not every day was a portfolio review, but you would get together in the conference room. Traders read the news, go through order the order book. What are we in process on based on, on the reports that people put, new orders would come in and then we go through the news. So, so during earnings season, it's going to be companies that have just reported, right? So I'm going in, it's, you know, it's like a tribute in old Roman days. I'm expecting laurels to be thrown. I'm in a chariot because, because Qualcomm printed what I said they would print and they guided well and it's up 7% in the pre-market, you know, and I'm feeling like Caesar and I go in and, you know, Chris James kind of scowling, oh, it must be, must be some other stock, can't be mine. So new to Qualcomm. Well, Qualcomm printed 52 cents. That was in line with my number versus the street at 46 cents. They guided next year at a buck 52 versus the street at a buck 35. You know, and I'm thinking, wow, Mark, wow, you're the best. Chris James, why wasn't it bigger? <laughs> I, I thought I wrote that it should be, you weren't pounding the table. I wrote that in the note two days ago, I'm pounding the table. Well, you didn't pound hard enough, Mark. So there you're, you're right, but you're wrong. I mean, he is right. I should have gone into his office, slammed the door and said, effing buy more Qualcomm. Correct. But I just, I kind of hid behind my note, right? He's like, no, if you have that kind of conviction, I want a skywriter. I want fireworks. I want, you know, I want, because, you know, again, they, they're looking at dozens of names. So, but that, that's a great day that turned into a really crappy day <laughs> right, right then. So it could have been a greater day. Could have been a greater day. But here's his perspective. And therefore you're wrong. Right. So you can be, you can be wrong when you're wrong and you can be wrong when you're right. Welcome to the hedge fund world. Can I tell you about my best day? My, yes. Literally my best day. My best day was the day after my second son was born. So this would have been January 10th, 2006. And I left the hospital to go have my review with Dan. He had flown in to do reviews. And, you know, they give you your P&L, all the names you have in the portfolio and the attribution. How much did you make or lose for the portfolio? And I think I had 18 names. None of them had lost money, both long and short. And so he goes, oh, I haven't really ever seen that. And so I'm like, ooh, I got to, I got to get, oh, and he had, he had let go of the internet analyst and said, you're going to be my internet analyst. Oh, so I did well last year and I got more coverage. He must like me today. So, <laughs> so I better, I better capitalize on this. I said, well, Dan, as you know, I, I now have two sons. Yep. I cannot raise them in San Francisco. And I don't mean to get political, but I said, I can't raise them in San Francisco. I need to be in San Diego. He goes, go get an office in San Diego. You travel for your job. I don't care. I trust you. Go do it. So bought a house in May. Moved. He goes, I didn't think it'd be that fast. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he let me move. Now talk about a vote of confidence. He let me move to San Diego. Yeah, that was, it's, and it's great having you in San Diego and we get to see each other and, Absolutely. and be part of each other's lives. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, all of these interactions, you know, with Dan, 
at Pequot, what's the biggest thing that it taught you about him as a leader and about how you might want to lead others in the future? There's a number of things. Number one, it's okay to have high expectations of the people that work for you, right? Make them feel valued. We were well compensated at Andor. We were very well compensated. We had a very good reputation. And, and again, I'm using Pequot and or interchangeably because we, we split out. But it's okay to have high expectations. And we were, you know, I think, I don't think he necessarily, he did the uh, Mark Kohler style of valuing his employees, but we were, we were very well compensated. And so that's how you, I mean, it's a hedge fund, right? <laughs> that's how you valued people. So it's, it's okay to have high expectations, let them do their job. And that's one thing that he, you know, it, that mentality of go do what you need to do to get conviction. Let's not trip over dollars to pick up pennies. You know, let's- Wow, empowering the people, enabling them. Absolutely. And, and, and having accountability. I mean, it's, it was early on that Gary was my boss, but it was very early that Gary- kind of removed himself as being that shield. Now there had been times when it it got particularly brutal or it was about to be and even Nick would chime in and you know it was kind of protecting the people that that work for you. But yeah, I mean it, I knew that if Nick's got my back and Gary had my back and Dan, you know, in retrospect, I and Chris, hey, they're challenging my conviction. There's a lot of money on the line here. You know, there's a lot of people's wealth on the line. We needed to be right. And he, he can't just say, how do you feel about this one, Mark? <laughs> you feel okay with this one? It can't be like that. Yeah. I mean, these were large, large positions. It might take us days, a few days to get out of them unless we wanted to just blow the stock up and dump it all right now. But yeah, it was. Love that. I love the high expectations of, of the people, but, and then really caring about them also and allowing them to do what they need to do. But then knowing that, you know, sometimes when you do what you need to do, there's, there's a negative consequence to it too. And I think people in high performance environments, they understand that. They know they're going into that environment. And you know what? It might not end so well, but doesn't mean it's the end. Doesn't right. mean it's the end. Yeah. Right. I mean, imagine, imagine having to know what's going on in Asia, but not allowing me to travel there. But, but me being held accountable for that, right? That, that would never happen at Andor. Never. Go to Asia. Oh, I need to be there. One time I was there for two weeks because that's how long it took me to go around, see everybody I needed to see. That's great. So it gave you the resources too. Absolutely. So you could be successful. You couldn't look back and just say, hey, I wish I would have had a trip to Asia. That would probably would have helped me. Yeah, I that. probably would have done a better job calling these stocks. No, that never, this words never spoken at Andor. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you're, we're using Pequot and Andor interchangeably right now, but you decide to leave there. And where do you go next? I went to Front Point Partners, you know, at Andor, there was only going to be one portfolio manager. I wanted to, I wanted to try my hand at, at being a portfolio manager. I left at the end of July in 2008, which was, 
you know, we were kind of in the middle of the housing crisis that was affecting everybody. And yeah, so it was a good time to start a portfolio because stocks were kind of depressed, especially in October. But I ended up not doing that for very long. You know, some people were going to jail for insider trading. I knew them. They were people that covered the same stocks I covered. They were people I'd been in meetings with. What really drove it home was when I found out that the person who was cooperating witness number two for the FBI was a friend of mine. And so I'm looking at compliance and I'm thinking about how we did it at Andor and we had a compliance officer and that's why we wrote everything down to make sure that we weren't, you know, approaching that line of, of insider trading. And so we, our trades were blessed by an attorney, you know, and so we did it right. In fact, I, I, I can't remember if his email or phone, but I, later I, emailed Dan and I said, Hey, I just want to thank you for, for teaching me to do it right, to do it the right way. Because I ended up leaving front point because I was worried about compliance. So I was afforded an opportunity to leave and go to a, to an oncology company. My mom had a few years before survived triple negative breast cancer. And I thought, okay, this could be a good jumping off point. I, I think I just wanted to try my hand at at an operating company and see what, I mean, we, we analyzed from the outside. It was kind of like looking in this black box. I mean, we think we know where the black box is growing and how big is the, you know, where's it going? How big is it going to be? What's it like to actually make the sausage inside the black box? And I connected to the concept of oncology, you know, like I said, with my mom and, and what this company was doing was, was so interesting. And, um, I've teamed up with the scientist from that company, and now he's on his third generation of oncolytic virus. So these are viruses that preferentially attack tumor cells. And there's been really two main issues that have plagued that industry and why they haven't been able to be successful. And he solved them. And he asked me to come aboard. So I'm employee number two, I'm chief business officer. I'm kind of building the business around his science, which is incredible. But, you know, we just did an experiment, what he did in mice. You know, we're going to be in humans possibly next week. But uh, next week? Next week. Yeah. We're going to be in humans. But it's, you know, low dose. Fantastic, and, though. But he, so two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, he did an experiment in mice, one dose, one dose killed 100% of the tumors in all of the mice within six days. Before it had been with two other, or yeah, two other drugs that we tested, 10 days, triple negative breast cancer and colorectal cancer, but now lung cancer. Yeah, he solved some pretty significant problems. So that really motivates me. That really motivates. It motivates me more than, you know, oh, we were up 1.2%. Okay. So the guy that, you know, is worth $10 million in our fund just made some more money, you know, great. Great job. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So as a dad and as a husband and working a more typical job and working on, you know, I'm, you know, dare I say, trying to find the cure for cancer, that has a different kind of reward. Oh, that makes me feel so good. Well, let's 
knock on wood that it that it works. But we'll yeah, we should have human data soon. You know, we came we came from the same, not just the same, you know, not just the military, you know, not just the same service, not just the t- same part of the service, the Navy, mm-hmm. not from just the submarines. We came from the same exact submarine. Yep. So when you think about your journey from where you started to really where you are today, what are the things that you think helped you surface as a leader? But also, what did you do to help others become better leaders? I would have to say that, you know, we, I don't think you had our, our second captain, Captain Hawkins on the pogie. Did not. He, you know, Captain Fry, absolutely brilliant, right? Two battles, just incredible. But Captain Hawkins had a different set of leadership qualities with, and you you remember this, when you got underway or you were coming into port with Captain Fry, he gave you the order and you were a parrot and you parroted it down to whoever he said to, right? I remember that. Right? And you, we used to joke about it, that you're a parrot. Well, so my first time as OD getting underway with with Captain Hawkins was in up in Canada and we were doing the the Mark 50 testing for the new torpedo and we're going in and out every day. And he just said to me, he said, Officer Dick, get the ship underway. I'm like, get the ship underway, I sir. And I'm waiting for the next command, which is single all lines. Then it's take in all lines. Then it's back one third, you know, left full rudder, start the out, train the outboard to zero nine, whatever. And I'm I'm just waiting and he's standing above me. And he's like, officer, the deck, get the ship underway. Get the ship underway, I, sir. Is this guy going to tell me to single all lines? Because <laughs> that's what what's happened. going on. Right. right. And so then he's like, get the ship underway. I'm like, I, sir. And so now, and he's standing behind me. He's got the railing and he's standing up there. And so now I, I take the little, you know, the microphone and I turn my head and I lift up really tall so that he can hear every command. I have topside bridge, single all lines, T- take in all lines. I, I blow the horn, you know, sir, ship's underway. Very well. Back one third, left four. I'm like, and then he's letting me drive the ship. So then I ended up being the, you know, maneuvering watch. That's the group that brings the ship in or gets it underway, OOD a lot more often than I probably should have, but I loved it. And he just let us drive. Awesome. So so while I learned from Captain Fry, you know, you you need to know everything. But and I learned from Captain Hawkins, hey, I'm, you know, I I can actually drive the ship. So that to me the the expectation of hey guess what analysts you need to know all this that's my expectation but then also enabling them to be able to have the tools and the time to you know it wasn't build me a 14 page model and give it to me in 45 minutes and it better be right it was never that right anyway that's awesome all right i just have a couple more questions for you what's a leadership skill that during hedge fund days that you and your team used day in and day out that you felt really made a difference to your success? I would have to say, even though we bristled at it, I, I, to me, that there was an and or process and it wasn't shooting from the hip. 
It wasn't guessing. It wasn't feeling. It wasn't emotion-based. We had a process. And it, the model better state it, and you better have put it into a note in the format that we do. And there were times when things were going against us. Now, we lost money one year, and it was because we were fundamentally wrong. It wasn't because we just we didn't just believe or we were fundamentally wrong. But that was a mistake in the portfolio. And certainly there were mistakes in stocks. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, you only need to be right 51% of the time because you limit your losses and you exploit your gains, your winners. But the process to me and sticking to it and believing in it. And I'm saying the lead, Dan believed, even when we were bristling as analysts going, these are going against, I mean, Dan would say, turn off your monitors. Stop looking at the market. Call your people, take their temperature, find out what's going on, because that's fundamental. What's happening in their business, right? What are they winning? What are they losing? Because ultimately the fundamentals are going to find their way into the model and the fundamentals always win. That was kind of how we believed. So we would be like, oh my God, I can't believe we're long and everything's going down. Turn off your monitors, go find, sure enough, you know, just like with the Marvell story, doom, 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 down it goes buy more. Oh, that's fantastic. Love that. It's like focus. Mm -hmm. Don't let all the minor distractions take you off of what that focus is and your belief in your team and yourself. Not to blind eye it. Right. Look at it, monitor, but hand steady on the wheel. Exactly. Like let's, let's get, let's try to attenuate a lot of that noise. Oh, that's fantastic. All right. Final question. Yep. What's the one thing someone listening to the podcast could do to surface the leader within them? Oh, that's a great, as I think about people with, with reports, people that report to them, I think there's a, a, a couple of things, clear expectations, enabling, empowering them to, to be able to do their job to the best of their abilities. And then when you do that, you can, you can layer in the accountability. And so, and and so that to me is, I mean, we, we can talk all day long about respecting the chain of command and taking the heat for the people below you and et cetera. And, and those are, that's kind of leadership 101, but, but, you know, you got to hire the right people, the people that want to believe they, they want, they have to buy into the culture. I mean, if you're, if you're at a hedge fund and you think that you're, you don't need to take your boss's call Friday night or Saturday night at eight o'clock. I don't care if you're at, you know, up in or at Napa or wherever it is. If, if Gary was, if Dan Benton was calling me, excuse me, Laura, I just got to take this call real quick. You know, I mean, you have to buy into the culture. So you need to find the people that'll buy into that culture. And then want to be empowered and then want to be held accountable for their, whatever it is their area of responsibility is. That to me is it. Gold. <laughs> Seriously, gold. That's gold. Mark, thanks so much for your time today. Sure. It's been fantastic and really appreciate it. Keep us updated on 
the trials and everything. We're, we're all pulling for you and we're excited. For Will you. do. All right. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thanks for joining Mark today. And remember, new episodes of Surfacing Leaders will be available every other week where you can become inspired, gain confidence, and learn leadership right where you are. Until next time, make it a great day.